So there's an accusation against the Bible. It's, it's one of these common criticisms that we have of the Bible that the New Testament or the, the Bible endorses slavery. So I want to look at that over the next couple of weeks. So I want to really sort of challenge the idea uh, or at least um, interrogate the idea or the accusation that the New Testament or that the Bible endorses slavery. And of course, this is the New Testament story. So we're going to focus in on what the New Testament has to say about it. Um, but knowing that what is true in the New Testament is really going to be true of the Old Testament as well. But effectively, just to, um, to sort of try to uh, answer this question, does the New Testament endorse slavery? Now, the accusation isn't a new one. Um, it's been, I've, I've heard it for my whole Christian life, whenever there's somebody who is antagonistic towards the Bible, certainly uh, atheists will use this as a reason for why they could never be a Christian and why they could never trust the, or, or um, you know, believe in the Bible or any sort of text that endorses something as evil as slavery. And I think where the basic uh, accusation comes from or is, is this uh, expectation or assumption that the Bible, um, you know, if it really was about a loving and merciful God, should uh, actively work against slavery, that it should actively condemn slavery and be a, a active spokes document um, against the whole institution. But what it seems to do instead is to say things as simple as slaves obey your masters. And so because it's saying that, because it's, it's not condemning slavery, but rather it's just um, at at best taking it as status quo or, as they would say, endorsing it because they're not overthrowing it. Um, you know, therefore, we can't trust the Bible or therefore we can't use the Bible. But is this really the case? And and this is what I really want to explore over these next few weeks. And so, look, this, this is a tough topic, okay? This is a very um, difficult topic to have to come to to, to have to face and have to have to come to terms with, but um, you know it, it's there, and you know if we are certainly for us as Christians, it, it's something we have to wrestle with. That we do have, uh, we talk about a God who is loving and merciful, and a God who sent Jesus to die to liberate the captives, and 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 all of these things that we hold to be true. But at the same time, doesn't speak against slavery. It doesn't uh, condemn it. It doesn't even. It just again, it just seems to um, just treat it as something that is perfectly normal. Um, that is something that we just. We, we don't really seem, it doesn't seem to take too much uh, interest in dealing with it, in, in, trying to, uh, try, in trying to get rid of slavery. So to do this then, we need to, as with all things that we talk about, and certainly on this channel, what we need to do is to look at these passages in the New Testament, but of course, look at them in their own context. Look at them in the context of the first century and understand them from within that framework recognizing that the world of the first century is a completely different world to the world of today, the world of the 21st century, where certainly in the West, slavery is outlawed. Slavery is something that is seen as a universal evil. Um, you know, we've, we've got to, first of all, understand it within its time and, and just get, try to get an understanding of how that culture perceived it. Um, they just certainly, they just didn't see it the way that we do. They saw it in a very different way. And so we have to at least understand that framework and not, not to agree with it, not to um, have, you know, relate to it in any way, but at least understand where that was coming from so as to at least 
understand the passages written within that world to try to get a, a better sense of, of what was really going on when these things were being said. So I guess the first overarching uh, thing that we have to come to grips with is that for all of human history, going back to the earliest points of civilization, that every single human society for all of human history has had slavery. It has just been a part of the human society, a part of the human fabric for all times and all places. There is just not a single society in any point in history, certainly none that we know of, that were not involved in slavery in some way, shape or form. It has just been a part of the human story. And this is what, this was true right up until the 19th century, up until the time when slavery was, was finally abolished, beginning in the West. Slavery was just part of the human story. Every single human being was involved in the slave in slavery in some way, be that they were a slave or they were free and they had slaves or they were trading slaves. Everyone was involved in this and it was just part of the human story. Now, when we look at it from the perspective of 2023, um, the question we would naturally ask is how could they possibly do that? Why on earth would anybody want to enslave another person? How, how could a person morally enslave another human being? How is that even possible for that to happen? And if we want to be really simplistic about it, the answer that we would give was, well, they were all just evil. I mean, slavery in and of itself, we understand it now. We see it now as being a, a universal evil. And so we then naturally assume that everybody involved with it must have been evil. It's it's just the way things were. They, they they were just evil, terrible people to be in that involved in that in the first place. But the problem with that very simplistic understanding is that that means that every single human being and every single human society up until the 19th century was just universally evil. That all humanity was completely evil until the 19th century when all of a sudden we abolished slavery and overnight we became good. All of a sudden hum human societies became not evil anymore because we got rid of slavery. Now that's, that's at least problematic. It, it's not a very nuanced uh, understanding of the complexity of human societies and the human race. It's, it's just far too simplistic an explanation for how this thing came about and Whilst, yes, absolutely, slavery is, is an evil, its context or its, certainly its origins um, were just far more complex than that. There was just so much more to it than just simply, well, we're just evil people, so we may as well just do slavery because we're just evil people. So what I want to do then over these next few weeks is to do give something of a more robust explanation. Now, look, you can still draw the same conclusions at the end of it that uh, all humanity was evil, but at least try to get a sense of the fuller picture of what this thing was about. And at the very least, try to understand the New Testament written in the first century, a time when slavery was just absolutely par for the course at least try to understand these passages within its context. And with a little bit more clarity, a bit more nuance, maybe just a bit more of a robust understanding, maybe see these texts with, with a little bit more color, with, with, a little, with a few more layers of complexity rather than just simply, well, they didn't demand slavery be abolished, so therefore they, they were complicit in evil. It's, well, as, what I would hope to demonstrate is that it's, that's factually untrue, um, but you might actually begin to see the New Testament 
uh, or certainly these passages with just a little bit more uh, a little bit more grace, maybe just a little bit more understanding um, to at least see where they were coming from and see what it is that they were trying to do with, uh, with, with these passages that we, we would be familiar with. Okay, so that's something of a starting point for where we're going to go with this. Now, to begin this whole series, I actually just want to begin with an Old Testament verse, not even a full verse, half a verse. And it's a, fa- it's a favorite one of mine. It's one I like to um, sort of reinforce to my students to give just to give a bit of a picture of what the ancient world looked like. Now, it's a verse you probably may not be familiar with, but you'd be familiar with the story. It comes from 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, and it says, In the springtime, when kings go off to war. Now, that's it. That's the whole verse. Well, that's at least the first half of the verse. And uh, it's just one of those throwaway lines. Now, we would be familiar with this verse because of the story that follows on after it. The story is the story of David and Bathsheba. So you might remember that story where David stays back in Jerusalem when his armies go off to fight, and it's there that he sees Bathsheba, and so, you know, the rest is history. We know how that story leads. But it's such an interesting sort of prelude to, to that story in the springtime when kings go off to war. It just, it speaks about something that, it speaks about it so factually that in this time, at springtime every year, kings just go to war. That's just what they do. If you want to know where the kings are in springtime, they're at war. That's just where they are. And so the the surprise of the story is not that kings went off to war. It's the fact that David wasn't there. That was what led to all of the trouble. I mean, you think David got in trouble because he didn't take his armies. He he didn't lead his armies to war. He stayed back in. uh, He stayed back instead. And that was the real mistake that he should have been off at war with all of the other kings because that's just what kings do at springtime. So why is that? Like what is the situation? What is the story here of kings going off to war in springtime? Well, the answer to that question is really actually goes back to the origins of civilization. So for for all of human history, um, you know, going back to the time when, you know, we're, we're back when we were coming out of an ape stage, um, humans had always – gathered themselves in what we call hunter-gatherer societies. Uh, and so a hunter-gatherer society, as the name suggests, it's just a band of people who sort of travel around to where the food sources are. And so, you know, we've sort of seen this in more recent history within Indigenous cultures where you still live in smaller groups and you travel around to where the food sources are, where the animals are, where there's uh, fruit and berries or, or whatever other um, sort of food sources that, that are available. And so you go to where the food is. And then when that food is gone, that food source is dried up, then you move on to the next place. And, and this is just how human societies functioned for, for most of human history. Now, that type of society comes, as you might assume, with some limitations. You're limited to the amount of food that is available in the region. And because you're constantly having, because you're constantly on the move, you just have to keep things small. You have to keep things very light. Um, you know, you've got the, the women who are carrying babies with them all the time because they're out gathering and you've got the men that are out hunting, you know, just trying to bring down these animals. But they're, they're limited to the amount of food that is actually available to them in, in, those, in, in those sort of regions. Uh, and so a typical hunter-gatherer society might only be 180 to 200 people at the absolute most because anything more than that, and it just becomes too hard to feed that many people. So these groups are always 
naturally small and they are by nature of being hunter-gatherers nomadic. They don't settle down anywhere. They always move from place to place wherever the food sources are. So you can't have massive groups of people, one, because you can't feed them, and two, to mobilize that many people is, is just virtually impossible. So these are always very small societies, and they are just sort of this sort of little close-knit group that just move from place to place. Now, within that sort of world, what you're going to have happen is that these different tribes and groups are going to bump into each other. And very often what that's going to lead to is a fight. And so they're going to fight with each other for their resources. And basically it's a winner-take-all scenario. If whoever loses are going to be slaughtered. That's just as simple as that. You're going to slaughter uh, all of the people from this other group and take all of their resources because, and then slaughter them because you don't want them coming back and having their revenge, right? You're just going to, it's just the way things work. You're just going to kill everybody in the other group. Now, what you might do is take some of the women. You might take some more women because you need women to make more babies. Like you need, you maybe need some, you need wives, you need, you know, basically you need some extra bodies. And so you might take some as captives and you will keep them and they become part of your particular group. But for everybody else, you just slaughter them. And so this is just how humans lived. This is how humans operated for hundreds of thousands of years as in our earliest times. But then in about 10,000 BC, everything changed. The entire way that humans structured themselves, at least certainly within one part of the world, completely changed. So where we see this change happen, it is in a, is in a place that we call the Fertile Crescent. Now, um, in you would know this from your Bibles, it's the place called Mesopotamia. Now, Mesopotamia, it's a Greek word meaning the place between two rivers. And the rivers that it's talking about are the Tigris and the Euphra Euphra Euphrates River. Now, these are in modern-day Iraq. And so this particular uh, region of the world, it's given the nickname the, the Cradle of Civilization. It's because it's here that humans, for the first time, settled down and they started to establish villages. They started to establish cities and, um, and static groups uh, of, of people who are staying in the one place. Now, the reason why they were able to stop and actually stay in this one place now in perpetuity was because in this particular region, this fertile crescent, as the name suggests, it was a very fertile place. And what was native to this particular area were the key grains that we still use today. These are the, the key staple grains that we use in our breads and, 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 and et cetera. These grow native in this area. And so what they found was that they could find enough nutrition from these plants that was to basically enable them to carry on and not have to go out hunting and gathering and, and, and so forth. Now, the basic rule of hunter-gathering or, or from you know, settling down into, these, into this area is that your uh, energy intake, your nu nutrition intake has to um, exceed the expenditure. So if, you are, um, you know, if it costs you X amount of protein and calories to go and hunt an animal and you only get a, a X amount in return, a lesser amount than what it costs you, eventually you're going to starve. So you need to be finding food that is going to provide an excess of, of protein, an excess of the nutrients that you need to be able to flourish, to actually you know become more healthy. 
And what they found in these plants was this nutrition. They, they found within this what they required uh, to survive and actually to be healthy and to flourish. So, so that was a total game changer because now they didn't have to go looking for food. The food was just naturally growing where they were. And so they could just settle down and every year gather in a harvest of food that was enough to keep them going through the whole year. And the next year and the next year, every year afterwards, they would just have this continual perpetual source of food that didn't need to be hunted down, that didn't need to be gathered in, in a forest somewhere. They just had it literally growing in their backyard. Now, the other thing that was uh, common to this region were four of the five key animals that were to eventually become domestic animals, domesticated animals that were also um, provided enough um, nutrition, enough protein for them to be able to survive on. And so I'm talking specifically about um, sheeps, goats, cows, and pigs. Now, these four animals, the fifth one being horses, but the four, these first four grow or, or were found natively in this region. Now, what was good about these animals is that they were docile and they were slow moving and they were big animals. You know, they, they, you kill a sheep or you kill a cow, you've, you've got enough food to feed, a, to feed a tribe. You've got a lot of food provided for you within this one animal. And so as opposed to hunting bears or lions or wolves or these other animals that are just as likely to kill you, hunting a cow, one, it's easy because they're slow and they don't fight back. And so these are the perfect uh, animals to have natively, and they can be used for pulling plows further down the timeline. They could, there's many other uses they had. Sheep can provide wool and they, you know, all, all these other uses these animals had, but primarily you've got these slow moving, very big, healthy animals that provide a lot of food for you to eat. And so it's the ideal place that it, it's, Again, the fertile crescent, it, it becomes the cradle of civilization because for the first time, humans could settle down and have all of the food provided for them. They didn't have to keep moving around. So then what's the result of, of this new place that we found? Well, a couple of things result from this. Number one, we can have larger groups. Because we can feed more people, we can have larger groups. We don't have to think about, well, if we keep this baby, we're going to have to carry it with us as we're going down to the next place to look for animals. We can, we can actually settle down, build huts, eventually build houses, build cities, and we can just establish ourselves and grow larger families. We can keep more of our children. Ideally, we can have more, have larger families and have larger groups. We can have larger um, groups of people, more than just the 200 we've always been capped at, but maybe we can have several hundred, maybe even thousands of people all living in the same place because we all share, because we've, we've got this abundance of food available to us. Now, a uh, major downside to this is that at the same time we get the introduction of a variety of killer diseases now the reason why we get these diseases is because well for the first time rather than um, you know hunting animals at a distance now we're domesticating these animals so these animals are living with us cows sheep goats pigs they're we're with them all the time and so rather than um, you know again going off and killing an animal a long way away and then dragging it back. No, these animals are sharing beds with us. These animals are living in our houses. And so the diseases that are coming out of them are coming to us. And so suddenly we've got this introduction now of a variety of diseases. And in addition to that, again, because we're not moving around anymore, it used to be that we would be, you know, go to one place in the world, one place in the region, hunt for food, and then a few weeks or months later, go to the next place. 
whatever rubbish we create or whatever um, waste we produce in one area, we're going to quickly move on from that. And so it's not going to necessarily affect us. But now that we're building cities and we're building villages and places where we're going to stay for generations, that waste is with us all the time. So we're literally living in our own filth and not just our filth, the filth of our animals as well. And so what we get now, uh, diseases, and these diseases are going to be one of the, become the primary killer now of these new societies. And that's that's another problem for another day that we'll deal with at a later stage. But that's what, that's definitely one of the downsides. But again, on the upside, what it means is now that we can, we can build cities, we can build larger communities, and this really becomes the birthplace or the beginning points of what is modern civilization. It's, it's, it's the starting point of the world that we now live in. But then you might say, okay, so what has this got to do with slavery? Well, this is exactly where the origins of slavery come from. Um, slavery is probably the oldest institution. It is as old as these sorts of civilizations that I've been talking about. In fact, it's, it's suggested that slavery was the, slaves were the first commodity. So if you think about things that you buy and sell, things you exchange for, the very first commodity in that sense was a slave. They were the first things that people began to desire after. Now, why did they want slaves? Well, because what we've created for ourselves now is a situation where we've got where we've been domesticated. We're not going around in bands from place to place with very limited resources. Now we're actually building houses, we're building cities that require work, they require maintenance, they require a variety of tasks that are now new to these human groups. Somebody's got to do that work. Now, it's obviously that's going to be us. We're the ones doing the work, but there's a lot of work to be done and so we need more help. So that's one area where we need human labor, but most Dominantly, where we need human labor is out in the fields. Now, the thing to keep in mind is that up until the 19th century, really up until the Industrial Revolution, upwards of 90% of the human population lived and worked on the land. The majority of humans for almost all of human history lived on the land because in these agrarian societies, that's where, that's where all the work needs to be done because if you don't do that work out there, then we've, we all die from starvation. Somebody has to do the work out in the fields. And so we've got all of these, uh, this, this new agricultural society that we've created for ourselves. We need to be working the land, but we need more help. And if we've got more human labor, then we can get more food. We can create, we can grow more. We can, we can uh, prosper more through that labor. So effectively, what we've created for ourselves now in this agricultural revolution is a whole set of new tasks that require physical labor in order to achieve those things. Now, all of think just just by way of perspective, think about everything that you do around your house. Think about all of the tasks that need to be done around the house. Think about all of the things that are being done in our world through machines, through automation. Think about all those tasks. And then go back 200 years and understand that there wasn't any such thing as machinery. It's, it's probably not a coincidence that slavery is abolished at the same time as the Industrial Revolution. So the Industrial Revolution basically is the invention of the steam engine. The steam engine now is able to produce, is now able to power um, and, and generate power for tasks that used to be done by humans. And not just 
a steam engine to replace one human, but a steam engine to replace hundreds of humans that can work all day and all night and only requires coal to keep it going. That's a game changer. That means that we have less need for human labor. And so in a sense, slavery becomes somewhat redundant. It's a, it's, it's a waste of resources and energy when we can just have a steam engine to do much more of the same work. But for all of human history prior to that, for everything before that, everything that was to be done was to be done by human labor, by human force. And so the more humans you have, the more you can do. It's as simple as that. The more tasks can be achieved because you've got more human bodies. Now, your particular society might still has a cap. It's still capped by the amount of um, your ability to reproduce and the amount of children that are surviving, particularly now that there are diseases around and you're starting to die off a bit more. You're still capped at how much potential you have within your society. And so you need more human labor. Where is that human labor going to come from? You've exhausted, you're using all of your present human labor. You need more of it. Well, where's that going to come from? Well, it's going to come from another group. Some other village, some other city, some other group of people are going to be the ones that are going to provide you the labor. Now, they're not just going to come and voluntarily work for you. They're not just going to give up their society to come and serve your society. Now, that's they've got their own societies to build. And so if they are going to come to serve you, they're going to be coming by force. You're going to go and have to take them. That's how this, this labor force is going to be built. And so then this brings us back to our verse in 2 Samuel. In the springtime, kings go off to war. So what's going on here? Well, first of all, let's look at the springtime. So think about in today's world, you just think about how many times you look at the you look at the time every day, right? Probably every five minutes you check in the time because you've got to be somewhere else, you've got something else going on. You're always conscious of what time it is. Back in the ancient world, you don't care about what the time is. You have no sense of what the time is because you just don't have a watch. Right, those, those things don't exist. There's only two times of the day that are of any concern, sunrise and sunset, and that's it. And in between those times, you're at work. That's all you're doing. And for almost everybody, you're working out in the fields. Once the sun goes down, you go home, it's dark, get up next morning, do it all again. And you're just doing that seven days a week. That's your whole life. So time is really of no consequence. Time is really of no concern for people. It's really just daylight and night. But then throughout the year as well, there's really only two key times that you need to be available for. There's the time when you sow the seeds, you sow for the harvest, and then when you bring in the harvest. So those two key points of the year, the same time every year, are the times when you're at the most work. But then for the rest of the year, there isn't a whole lot more to do. So the basic yearly cycle begins in Spring, so end of winter, spring. Now, thinking in the Northern Hemisphere as well, so with spring beginning in March, you've got uh, end of winter, and then that's when you're sowing seed. So you've, you've brought in the harvest from the previous year, you're sowing the seed for the next year, and then it comes into spring, you get the spring rains, you get into the summer, the summer's bringing the growth, and then we come into the autumn or the fall, and that's when we're doing the harvest. So those are the two key brackets of the yearly cycle. And then once you've brought in the harvest, now we come into the winter. And now during the winter, there's not a lot you can do, right? It's probably snowing in many, many places where you are. Um, there's certainly nothing's growing. It's winter, it's cold, the days are short. Uh, the further north you go, basically there's just almost no sunrise, there's no sun. It's just a it's a miserable time. There's nothing you can do, there's no work to be done. You're just trying to survive through the winter. 
Then you come out of the winter, getting towards the end, spring is starting to warm up, spring is on its way, now it's time to sow seeds again. And so you've taken some seed from the previous year's harvest, you're sowing that, and then for the rest of it, you've stored that away because that's what's going to feed you for the next 12 months until the next harvest comes in. That's your life. And every day of that year is just spent either working on the land or waiting for the harvest to come in or waiting for the winter to get past until you can sow your seeds again. So what that means is then you have this bracket of time, about a six-month period between March and getting, to, getting up towards sort of October, November when it's time to bring in the harvest. You've got this period of the year where there really is just is nothing to do. You're literally, if you, stay, if you stay at home, you're literally just watching the grass grow. That's all you can do. So what are you going to do in that time? Well, you're going to go and pick a fight with the guys down the road. You're going to go and start a fight with the local village, or you're going to go over those mountains there and see what the cities on the other side are and see what, what sort of resources they have. Because ultimately you want to enrich yourself. Maybe your harvest hasn't been very good, so you need to get some more food, or maybe you just want to get rich. You want to go and get some gold. Um, but primarily what you want to get is slaves. What you need is more human labor, particularly for this harvest that's coming up, but also because you just want more human labor. You just want more slaves to be able to do the various things that are required around the house or around the fields or whatever the case might be. So then in springtime, kings go off to war. Now, this is where we get, if you think about the, the, the month March, why was it named March? Well, March is based on the Roman god Mars. So Mars, if you remember, was the Roman god of war. So in the springtime, beginning of spring, March, well, that's the month we all go off to war. That's when we worship Mars. And so we get the name March as a result of kings going off to war. So then for every king, for every community, this is the time to go to war. This is the time, what they call the campaign season. Now, you don't fight through the winter because it's too cold. There's no food. When you set off to, to start a war, you can take some supplies for you, but you can't take six months worth of food for your army. Now, when we talk about armies, we're usually talking about a few hundred, maybe a few thousand men here. We're not talking about a lot of people. But even that is a lot of food to feed them for six months. The assumption is you're going to be fed along the way. You're going to go and pillage and plunder all along the way, take the food to keep you going throughout the campaign. So that's, well, where the most food is going to be available is going to be in spring. It's going to be you know, when this is this is when there's going to be food around. And so that's the most appropriate time. But more than that, it's just better weather, right? You're not fighting in snow, you're fighting when it's sunny, when it's warm in the summer. So it's called the campaign season. And it's this time kings go off to war. Now, there's two types of kings going off to war. There's the kings going off to start a war, and then there's the kings going off to defend themselves from the king coming down the road to start the war. But either way, everyone's going to war. It's either to defend what you've got or it's to go and try to take more from the guy down the road. But either way, everybody's in the fight. Everyone is going off to war. But what is essential, and this is what everybody universally agrees on, is that at the end of the campaign season, we, we put a halt to the war and then we go back to our villages, we go back to our towns and we carry on. We, we get back for the harvest because the harvest is absolutely essential. It's no point fighting on for a couple of months if we come back and we're all going to starve to death because we haven't brought in the harvest. So everybody goes back for the harvest. But then spring comes around again. And if you haven't finished that battle, if that enemy hasn't been fully vanquished, you come back next spring and you start again. In fact, this is how the Romans were so successful in their military campaigns because every spring they just go back to the same place and just keep fighting and fighting and fighting until they beat these people. 
So they might lose one year, but that's all right. They'll go back, they'll get more men, they'll, they'll train them up, they'll go back the next spring and they'll keep fighting, they'll keep fighting until these people either surrender or they're all dead. But one way or the other, Rome always wins because they just don't give up. Every campaign season, they keep fighting until they get the victory that, they was, that they're seeking after. But this was really the point. The goal of all of these wars was enrichment, to be enriched in gold, silver, any sort of other precious materials and in slaves. That's what you're going after. And so slavery is just part of the fabric. You know every year that if you're either going off to war to get slaves or if you don't fight, you're going to be made a slave. It's as simple as that. Now, here's where, here's where it gets a little bit backwards. And this is the thing we have to really try to come to grips with in this series. You don't have to agree with slavery. And of course, we're never going to agree with slavery. There's nothing, there's, there's nothing redeeming about it. But you have to understand the way that history works. History always works forward. See, the problem is that we sit here in 2023 and we look back at the first century and we judge them by where we've got to. So we look back and we say they were so barbaric back then because, you know, look at where we are and what they were. They were such terrible people and we judge them by this particular standard. But what we completely fail to recognize is there's been 2,000 years of progress between then and now that has brought us to where we are so in fact that we can look back and say, look how bad those people were. What we should be doing is looking back at that first century and going, look how far we've come. And then maybe even inquire as to the things that were changed, the, the, the changes that were implemented throughout the centuries that brought us to where we are. How is it that we got to a point where there's no slavery? How do we get to a point in the West where we see slavery as an ultimate evil, whereas 2,000 years ago, they just saw it as part of the course. It was just part of their normal society. How does that happen? Well, because history moves forward. It brings us to where we are. And so whatever is going on in the first century is only ever a product of what was going on in the centuries before it. And so one of the things we, we sort of need to try to reconcile is that slavery was actually a first step in, as, of an improvement in human societies. Now, again, this, this is backwards. I get it. But if you remember, all of those hunter-gatherer societies prior to this agricultural revolution Every one of those societies, when you battle with somebody, everyone dies. The winner is the one is the only one left alive because everyone on the other side is dead. And so, if you lose a battle, you that's it. You're dead. That's it. That you're not going home that day. What changes with this movement towards slavery is that, well, at the very least, they stay alive. Right? It used to be that we just kill all of you. Now we're going to keep you alive and we're going to make you work. But the work that you're doing is no different to what we're already doing because everybody works on the land. We just need more people to work on the land. The difference is, is that I'm doing it maybe as a free person and you're doing it as a slave. But at the end of the day, we're working the same hours, we're working the same labor, we're doing exactly the same task as one another. The difference is I'm free and you're not. Now, that's not to trivialize it. That is not in any way, shape, and form to trivialize it, but we have to understand the, 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 the difference or, or how, uh, how, how slavery was, was perceived. You have to understand um, the type of world that we're dealing with where it is just all about everyone is just laboring and that's what we all share. That's, that's the thing that we're all, we're all doing here. Now, part of the reason why that is still so 
uh, it's so abhorrent to us, it's so horrific, is because we've got such a strong sense of freedom. We've got such a strong sense of liberty. This sort of very, well, again, Western idea that we have of, of liberty, of freedom, of the individual, you know, this is all a very, very nice, very modern idea. This sense that every individual has individual liberties that are God-given, that nobody can infringe upon, and to infringe upon them is a form of slavery. We take that idea for granted, that, that worldview we take for granted. But that's very unique. That's very new in the context, again, of human history. You know, one of my favorite, um, well, I've got a little magnet on my fridge and I've got lots of magnets from different places that we've been to, but my favorite of all is one I got from New Hampshire. So the state in America, New Hampshire. And what it says on it, live free or die. Now, what that is, is the motto of the state, live free or die. And you see this on the bumper, on the bumper plates, on, on the, sorry, on the, the license plates of, of cars driving around there, but that's the state motto. Now, New Hampshire is one of the original 13 colonies. It's one of the original states uh, during the, the Revolutionary War of the 18th century. And so it really just encaptures the idea of, of what the revolutionaries were fighting for. We're fighting for freedom. We're fighting for individual liberties. And we would rather be free. We would, we would rather die than be re-enslaved back to the British. So it's live free or die. And so there's this passionate sense of, of liberty, of freedom that we just take for granted. We just, we just constantly think in those categories. And so for us to look back at a time where slavery was somehow an improvement is just, it's, a, it's horrific to even conceive of. It's just how, how can we possibly even get into that headspace? But again, we've, we've, unless we can at least acknowledge that, at least see it for what it is, it's going to be so difficult for us to understand whatever else is going on in that time, let alone in the New Testament. And so with all of that as something of a starting point, what I want to do this week and next week is just to try to piece together something of a framework or something of an a picture of what slavery was. Now, again, this is not an easy topic. And look, if if you're going to, you may be very sensitive to what I'm talking about here and this probably these probably aren't the episodes for you. But if it is something you're willing to wrestle with, if it is something you, you've seen in your New Testament and that you're looking at going, we've, how do you deal with this? You know, I want to uh, embrace the New Testament. I want to believe in a God of love and mercy and goodness and justice. How do I reconcile this? Well, well, that's what I'm hoping we can do in this journey, really just sort of unpacking as deeply and, and sort of as clearly as possible what this world of the first century was. And then from that point of view, look at what the New Testament was doing with it. it yes, it's, it doesn't do the, the, the uh, fighting for justice, the liberation, the you know, abolish slavery sort of thing. It, it certainly doesn't do that. But the reason for that is that it just simply couldn't. It, it just it wasn't able to do that. It was just there was no capacity for any of the early Christians to to do that. And and the reality was is that for the for the Christians in the first century, they could they saw no reason for it. They 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 couldn't conceive of a world that didn't have slavery. And, and that's just the basic point. So what I want to I guess describe then this week and next week is what is really what is considered what we would call in the first century a slave society. Now, I'm 
whatever I say about the first century is really just true for all of human history up until the 19th century, because so long as the, before slavery was abolished, every society was just a slave society. Uh, this is true for all of the empires. Think of any place on the planet and you're going to find slavery at every point in human history. So I'm, I'm going to be talking about the first century specifically, um, but under, again, just understanding that this is true for all of the places before and after during this particular time. And understand that too, that what I'm talking about, what I'm talking about here is the Roman Empire. Um, but I'm also talking about at the same time over in the Chinese Empire. The thing to keep in mind is that in the first century, there are two major empires at work. Um, there's the Roman Empire that we, and that's the one we focus on sort of, sort of through our Western lens. But at the same time, you also have a Chinese empire. Now, the, both of these empires put together made up maybe 100 to 140 million thereabouts. So they had no censuses back then, so we've got no way of knowing exactly how many. But upwards of about 150 million people in total in these two empires. And really what that consists of is the entirety of the human population on the planet at that time. Now you say, well, what about all the other indigenous cultures? Certainly, but they were small hunter-gatherer societies. So they might've made up, you know, tens, a few tens of thousands perhaps, but not a great deal more than what was already in Europe and Asia. So Europe and Asia contain the majority of the human population. And most of that, again, stemming out of this fertile crescent. Most of it, it's another talk for another day, but most of it stems out of that fertile crescent where human societies spread out until we get to the first century where we find these two great empires at play. So whatever I'm saying about slavery is true for everybody in that time on the planet. This is just everyone is thinking this way in, in both of those empires. So what we're dealing with then is, again, a slave society. So what does that mean in practical terms? Well, as we've seen, slavery was always related to labor. It was always related to production. Uh, in the same way that we use machinery, they use slaves because they didn't have machinery yet. And so slavery was immediately connected to production and to labor. It had nothing to do with, well, I hate you. You're a terrible person, so I'm going to enslave you to punish you. No, that's not how slavery works. Slavery is the simply a mechanism, simply a, a, a way by which we get more done. And we can't produce enough people, so we're going to go and get some, we're going to take them captive, and we're going to make them work for us. That's slavery at its core. It's a very pragmatic uh, institution. But the thing to also bear in mind is that slaves were part of the, part of the family. We think about the modern family as being sort of the nuclear family. So, you know, maybe a mother and father and children in a pretty standard sort of marriage. Of course, there's variations of that, but that's the basic core unit. And any extension beyond that, any extended family are in their own houses, in their own worlds. We've got friends, we've got connections, but they're all part of their own families. We don't think about family as anything more than just that initial nuclear family. In Paul's time, however, the family was that nuclear unit and then everybody else attached to it, especially slaves. And so in every ancient household, you're going to have slaves. Even the poorest houses will have maybe one slave. Now, a really impoverished family may not have slaves. Now, if, if you find a family that doesn't have slaves, it's not because they're anti-slavery, right? It's not because they're standing against this oppressive institution. No, it's just that they can't afford it. 
in the same way that you might not have a dishwasher, for example, whereas everybody else does. It's not that you just love washing dishes. I mean, maybe it is, but generally it's not because you love washing dishes. You'd have a dishwasher, but you just can't afford it. That's the only reason why you wouldn't have a slave in one of these poorer families. But if you can afford a slave, you're absolutely going to get a slave because you want the help. There's just a lot of work to do because absolutely every single thing that has to be done, right down to making clothes, all of it has to be done by hand. It's all manual labor. And so just by the sheer amount of tasks that have to be done, you need slaves. But as you get wealthier, you know, you've got the same amount of tasks, but you just don't want to do them in the same way that we don't want to do a lot of the tasks we've got. We, we got a, bought a robot vacuum the other day. It's fantastic. You know, it doesn't take you long to pick up you know, the vacuum and walk around the house. But if you can just get a machine to go around and do it while you're out doing something else, fantastic. And so in the same way, 2000 years ago or any time back then, you don't want to do a task, you get a slave to do it. That's what they're there for. It's just like buying an appliance. Now again, please, I don't want to be blasé about this. I don't want to sound like I'm just, oh, it's just another thing. It's no, it's, it, it is terrible. Let's just agree that this is an evil institution. But you've got to understand that the way that it's seen by somebody in Paul's time is that this is just, they're an appliance. That's what they are, they're labor. But they're also part of the family. The rea- in fact, there are slaves who were highly trusted by their masters in very close relationship. One of the, one of the best examples you see of this is uh, Cicero. So Cicero was a first century BC orator, very famous Roman senator. And he had a slave named Tyro. Now, Tyro had been a slave. They, they'd actually grown up together. So when Cicero was a boy, Tyro was a son of one of the slaves in the father's family. And so they just grew up as friends. But Tyro was always the slave of Cicero. Right from the time they were young boys growing up together, he was always the slave. But at the same time, they were best friends. They were just, they, 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 he was closer to Tyro than, than maybe his own, his own family. So Tyro was just this most trusted person in his life. But at the same time, he was still a slave. Now, incidentally, we actually have... Um, something of Tyro's legacy even today. So one of Tyro, what Tyro was a highly literate slave and, and Cicero was an orator, so he was a very literate man. He wrote a lot. Um, and so Tyro was effectively his secretary. That was his primary role. And so whenever Cicero was dictating a letter or a speech, Tyro was the one writing it down. Now he's, Cicero, now normally when you dictate a speech um, and somebody's having to write it out by hand, you've got to go very slowly. You've got to, you know, word by word because obviously writing it down is very slow. Tyro had actually developed a shorthand system which enabled Cicero to speak at full speed whilst he was making notes. And so he could keep up by hand, and this is on a papyrus with ink and a, you know, where you've got to dip the pen in the ink, and he, but he could still keep up with Cicero's speech. Now, the reason he was able to do this was because of the shorthand system that he developed. Things like using IE for that is, or for example, abbreviates that to EG, or et cetera, et cetera, abbreviating that to ETC full stop. So in other words, these abbreviations that we still use in the English language came from this slave, came from Tyro. We know where those things came from. He developed those things and then trained other slaves in how to do that. He effectively created the first shorthand system that we would now do on a computer. Now, that's just an aside. That's just beside the point. But what I'm saying here is that a slave is a part of the family. 
That's just the reality. And slaves could become very close confidants of a master. They could be their most entrusted workers. Um, slaves could be managers of whole households. They could be out there, uh, you know, taking ships of cargo on behalf of the master or running farms or any number of tasks that were required of the, the, the master was requiring would be entrusted to these slaves. And they would be trusted with some very, very uh, important stuff. But at the same time, a slave was always property. A slave, though they could be part of the family and, and very much were, um, you know, there was some, there were plenty of examples of masters who would fall in love with their slave girl, free her, and then marry her. You know, they start families with slaves. I mean, there could be very intimate relationships. Now, this doesn't happen very much, but it certainly happened enough to know that that wasn't uncommon. So you would certainly have these types of relationships. But at the end of the day, a slave was always part of the property. A slave, though being human of sorts, as far as they were concerned, was always at the same time part of the household property, part of the, the they were counted amongst the the goods of uh, owned by the master. So we, we get a really good example of this from Aristotle. So Aristotle says in the arrangement in the arrangement of the family, a slave is a living possession and property a number of such instruments. And the servant is himself an instrument which takes precedence of all other instruments. The master is only the master of the slave. He does not belong to him. Whereas the slave is not only the slave of his master, but wholly belongs to him. And a possession may be defined as an instrument of action separable from the possessor. So slaves absolutely were part of the family, but at the same time, they were also always understood as property. But the big picture, I guess I want to finish off with this week, and we're going to go into more detail with this next week, but the picture that I really want to sort of leave you with this week is to recognize that what we're dealing with is a slave society. You're talking about a world where slavery was just never questioned. It just simply wasn't. Slavery was just what you do. And really, there was only two categories of people. There were those who were free, and then there were those who were slaves. And even slaves themselves didn't question the institution. They took for granted that slavery is what this world does. In the same way, and I use the example of the internet, imagine a world without the internet. Right? Imagine a world where there's no internet. It's, it's, it's impossible to conceive of. You know, Aristotle says at one point, if shuttles wove and quills played harps of themselves, master craftsmen would have no need of assistance and masters no need of slaves. It's, it's kind of dark humor. What Aristotle is saying is it's unimaginable. A world without slaves is like a shuttle that wove by itself. In other words, what he's describing is a sewing machine, right? That is impossible. It is inconceivable of a world apart from slavery. We just can't imagine it, and nor do we need to, nor do we want to, because we've got slaves, They and it's it's just the way that, that we do this world. So there is no world without slavery. In the same way for us, we can't imagine a world without the internet. Now, one day, centuries from now, we might come up with a better improvement for or, or something that supersedes the need for the internet, sure. But right now, that world is inconceivable. And we can't imagine a world without it. We can't imagine a world where we're not thoroughly dependent on it. I mean, just this week, my laptop's been got destroyed on Monday. I poured coffee all over it. I can't believe it. I poured coffee all over my, my laptop and it's been gone all week. And so I'm using an old laptop. And even that, just having a week without my laptop with all set up for my life, I can do all of the work on other ones, but it's just awkward. So I, I, I'm almost at a point where I can't imagine a world without just my laptop, let alone the internet. Well, that inconceivability 
is how a first century person would imagine a world without slavery. It's just, it's not even something you would even consider. And so this is what we call a slave society, plain and simple. And again, no one questions that. Even the slaves don't. The reality was that when a slave was set free, the first thing they would do, they'd go and get a slave because they know the value of a slave. They're not questioning the institution. They've just got lucky that they got free. Well, now it's their turn to go and get a slave for themselves to get somebody else to do the work that they used to have to do for somebody else. That's just the way this world is. So that's the world that we need to look at the New Testament in because that is the world of the New Testament. This world, this slave society, is the world in which the New Testament was written. Now, just to sort of give some hope to where we're going with this, you've got to recognize that when we're dealing with the early church, we're talking about a few hundred, maybe a few thousand by the end of the first century. We're talking about the tiniest handfuls of Christians who are just struggling to survive, living in a world where slavery is just part of the fabric. And we're wanting them to be abolitionists. We're wanting them to stand against the society and tear down this evil institution of slavery. That's kind of like me saying to your church, you know, might have a church of a few thousand people saying, all right, your church needs to be solely responsible for bringing down the internet. You need to act against the internet and to tear it down and remove it from society. Now, if you're looking at that thinking, well, that's stupid and that's an impossible task. Well, that's kind of what we're expecting the Christians to do. We're wanting them to tear this thing down. They're trying to survive. But what we do find them doing is starting to sow some seeds of doubt, starting to sow some seeds of insurrection, starting to change the way people see a slave. Not necessarily the institution. They, they, they assume they know that they're never going to get rid of that. That's just not something they can see themselves ever doing. But maybe what if we sowed a few seeds of doubt in the minds of masters as to how they see their slaves. Maybe we can just make that small incremental change, give that a few generations, and let's just see where that ends up. We're trying to change the entire course of human history. We're trying to change an institution that has been part of human societies since before we can even remember, and as far as we can tell, will be here with us forevermore. How do, you, how do we change that? Well, maybe we just, again, sow a few seeds of doubt into that and just let them grow a little bit, just let them foster a little bit, and let's just see where that ends up. In other words, what we find in the New Testament is something of the very, very early beginnings of a small cultural shift that, given time, and probably longer than maybe it should have taken, but certainly eventually, was to bring down the institution of slavery. So anyway, that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks. Um, so I hope you, you join me for the journey, but otherwise I'll see you next week. Have a great week.